You're listening to the Arise Church Podcast. We are an Acts 29 church in Ventura, California, where we exalt Christ, embrace community, and engage culture. Find out more info or hear more sermons at our website, ariseventura.com. Thanks for listening. Coming to the book of James, I think this morning we need to be honest with ourselves that we have asked a question and that many people ask a question. And the question is, why do good things happen to bad people? Have you ever asked that question? Yes? No? Maybe so? I, get, I got some head nods. Yes? We, we together now. Y'all don't have to be silent. All right. Okay. So, so why do good things happen to bad people is a question that a lot of us ask. A lot of people ask, well-meaning people, uh, people who are just being honest. It's something that we wrestle with. Um, and, you know, when you think about why bad things happen to good people, you might be the person who says, well, I'm a little bit more of a Bible student and I'm even of a certain disposition theologically. I don't think anybody is good. I know that Romans says that nobody seeks after God, right? So you might be that individual. Well, the truth is, is you probably still ask the question, why does God allow difficulty and casualties and calamity in the lives of his people? You probably still ask that question. It's one in the same. And I think James answers that for us. It answers us that for us even this morning. We're starting in the book of James. And this is a book that was written not many years after the ascension of Christ. This is really one of the first letters, one of the first epistles in the New Testament in terms of its recording. We're talking about in the mid 40s, in the mid 40s, right? Jesus was uh, buried and resurrected and ascended in 33 AD. So we're talking 10, 15 years later, here comes this epistle. This isn't removed from the reality of the difficulty and struggle, right? So James is writing at that time. And I think that as we look at it, what we can see is that he's actually answering that question and he's doing so to help the people who he's writing to, uh, to persevere, to endure, which we'll get into. Now, here's something that's important. Every time you set the context of like, what are we studying? Why are we reading it? Who is it originally to? It's very important to know stuff like the author. And at this point, it would be easy to just say James wrote it. But you guys know, like I know, that that doesn't mean anything to you and I. Who is James, right? Oh, wait a minute. Let me look back. Jesus had 12 disciples. And as I read through, I see he had John and James, the sons of Zebedee. And then he had John or James, the son of Alphaeus. So he's got two James disciples. I don't even know if it's one of them. Right. And so that's something that we want to wrestle through. Let me give you some details so that this is helpful for you as we study the book over the next few months. All right. Um, I, I, I was I was studying. I can see that James, the son of Alphaeus, is not the one who's writing this. So that's one of Jesus's disciples. Uh, the only times he's named is like four different times. And it's always in a list of here are Jesus's 12 disciples. And that's all you hear of him. Uh, and, and you don't really hear much more in the Gospels. Then you have uh, James, the son of Zebedee. If I could just give you something quick about him. He's John's 
brother, right? They leaped out of the boat. Jesus said, follow me. They left their dad hanging. He was fishing and they dropped their nets and they decided they were going to follow Jesus. And so he's a prominent disciple. And every time you hear Peter, James and John, that three kind of among the 12, that's who that James is, right? Well, listen to this. We already know how his life went. In Acts chapter 12, we read this. About that time, this is 10-ish years later, after the resurrection and, and ascension. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on those who belonged to the church. And verse 2 in Acts 12 says, he killed James, the brother of John. So now that strikes out Jesus' two disciples. Well, who's writing this? Those guys were really close to Jesus. They were the ones who were really close to him. They were his disciples. And now we have this epistle that's written and it's almost like it doesn't make sense to us, right? Well, if it couldn't have been them, there is someone who is just as close and, just, and there is someone who was uh, maybe even more qualified to be the author of this book. When you read in Matthew chapter 13, you read a listing out of Jesus's half siblings. You guys know that Mary and Joseph got married, right? We know that Jesus was uh, born miraculously and conceived miraculously, right? Immaculately, as we say, because of what? The virgin birth. But they had other children. It names out four brothers and then it says some sisters. So the reality is, is that Jesus had at least six siblings. And the oldest one, the one that came next in line, his name was James. All right. From, from that place, here's what you probably have heard about A. James. You've heard of James the Just. You might have even heard of uh, Humble James. That's the James that actually would grow to be a prominent leader in the church all the way until the mid-60s, the Jerusalem church that was first born right there at the Pentecost and continued to grow. 3,000 men a day, 5,000 men a day, plus women and children. Conservatively, that James led a church that was of about 20,000 people. All right. 20,000 people. So the, this idea of a mega church, it was actually the first church. But you know what looks different? When you turn to the book of James and you see how and who he was writing to, you realize it wasn't just that he was writing to 20,000 people who gathered in one place and are, were with him. And he had a really big, powerful organization that was called a mega church. The reality is, is that he opens up and he writes to people who are everywhere. And that's how we're going to start. All right. Um, if anybody wants to ask me, how do I come to that conclusion? Got some things, you know, first Corinthians chapter 15, uh, John chapter seven, some other verses that I can show you how in studying this, you can come down to realizing, hey, Paul would refer to James, the Lord's brother. This James had died. The son of Alphaeus was one of his disciples. And John seven tells us that when Jesus's family came to the door and he said those infamous words, who are my mother and my brothers? Right. They wanted him. It also tells us that Jesus's family didn't believe in him. So this couldn't be that James as a disciple at that time. Right. So that's how we come to that. We'll, we'll talk about it more because I don't want to spend all the time at that point. I just wanted to build up that place so that as you are thinking about this and we're, as we're walking through this, we actually get to the spot where we can see the importance of it. iPad temperature, that's gonna be part of it. So this has just gotta be off of the dome and that's good. So here's the deal. 
James chapter one opens this way. If you're in your journal, follow along with me. I don't want my phone to do the same thing. Follow along with me. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James leading a church of 20,000 people and experiencing the calamities of that day. If you read the book of Acts, what you realize is that the, one of the first things they experienced was a pandemic. It was a famine and it was widespread and it was everywhere. Thank you. It was widespread and it was everywhere. They had a pandemic. And guess what? He says that he's writing to the people who are in dispersion. We don't use that word. Some of your translations, if you had an NIV or another translation, what you know, it, what you know what it would say? It would say the 12 tribes that are scattered about among the nations. So this is after persecution decentralizes the church. 20,000 people go into their homes in different places. Some of them lose their homes. They go into other places. They end up living in uh, parts of Judea and Samaria and, and even further out than that. This is who James is writing to, and this is how he's writing. He starts out and he says about himself, James, a servant of God of the Lord Je- uh, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus. You know why that's important? What would you say if you were Jesus's half-brother? You had a church of 20,000 people and you had a prominent place in a church to where people had to come to you. Like when Paul got saved, right, Paul had to go check in with James and say, is this dude really real? When Paul wanted to start ministry, he went back and got the right hand of fellowship from James and Peter. Like this guy is prominent. Did, did he start out and say, James, the Lord's brother? James, James. The, the one who is uh, the closest to Jesus. I actually share, uh, you know, in his family line, if you would. No, he didn't. He said, I'm a slave. I'm a servant of God. You know what he did at that moment? Is he affirmed to everyone what I just asked you about? I hope you're signed up for what God wants to do in your life to send you to do exactly what Carlos talked about this morning. This is not something where we sign up and we're just a part of a social club. This definitely ain't comfortable, right? <laughs> Being on Zoom and I'm talking sort of, I mean, you can hear me, right? I'm not talking to you, but you're with us. These are not comfortable times, but God is shaking things up and he doesn't want us to be comfortable. As we look in the book of James, what we need to actually see is a person with a prominent place in the church who led a large gospel movement of 20,000 people did that and they were scattered everywhere. And he calls himself a slave of God. And just in case anybody confused the fact that he was a leader of a Jerusalem church and he had been a Jew and he was ethnically Jew, he says, no, I'm also a servant, a slave, a doulos is the word. I am that also of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as he's writing, he's saying, let's not forget that he really is the Messiah. Y'all got that? Okay, James is writing that way. That, that makes it, to me, that, that makes it very interesting. And it's way more fun to now read, okay, well, what are his words like, right? I mean, he jumps straight out and he says, I'm writing to the 12 tribes in the uh, to the, in the dispersion. That word, some of you may have heard uh, the word used in other contexts. The word is diaspora. He's writing to people who are scattered everywhere. He's writing pe- to people who have been displaced. 
He's writing to people who are the people of God, but they're not in a comfortable spot. He's not writing to the folks that come to his synagogue. Does that make sense? You guys follow me in that? And so it makes sense that he doesn't go on a whole long story list. He just jumps right into it. The first thing he has for them is count it all joy. My brothers, and it should say brethren or brothers and sisters. Nobody's outside of this. Count it all as joy when you face various trials. Count it as joy is what he says. The concept of counting it as joy is he doesn't want you to fake it and say that, oh, trials are actually really enjoyable. That's not what he's talking about. He's telling you to reckon it that way, to see it that way, to have the attitude that is that way. I want you to see it as something that is completely and purely an opportunity for you to be joyous when you face various trials. Now, you just I'm going to go down the list here and, 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 and the people, let's say people on the uh, Zoom, I'll start with you guys. All of y'all are in totally different places. You used to be in one spot. You've been moved away from your family. You've been lost your home. You're not here anymore. I want you to count it as joy facing that kind of a trial. Look down here at this family, right? You guys, the Velasquez's, not only have you been displaced, but you lost your job. You know, you're no longer able to make uh, uh, money for your family. I want you to count that as joy. You go all the way around. Right? I could do that for the next half hour, and I just realize I'm off script because I don't have it anymore. But here's the deal. If I go down the list, the various trials that you can face, the fact that there's a pandemic, the fact that there's pestilence. Again, that he's talking to people who, 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 who uh, experience that. He said, I want you to count all of those things as joy. How do you do that? How, do you, how in the world can you see trials and challenges, problems, if you would, pain, suffering? How do you count that as joy? And why should you do that? You guys know I'm more about the why, right? Knowing our why. Well, if you look at the book of, uh, if you look at James chapter one, he actually gives us our answer right behind it. That four. It could say, uh, or it just, it's four, right? Here's the reason. Here is the, uh, the, the, the reason why you need to do that. He said, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So what he just did was he said trials, various trials, doesn't matter if you're sick, doesn't matter if you lose your job, doesn't matter if you're being persecuted, all those things are linked to the testing of your faith. Trials should actually be better understood as temptation testing or training. When we were at the beach on Friday and you had Carlos and Matt, Carl and Sarah, they're talking about working out at CrossFit. Sarah was the athlete of the month. Sarah Schroeder, shout out, right? She's the athlete of the month at the, at the uh, CrossFit. They're talking about the rigorous training that they do. That's the kind of word that's being used here when it talks about your trials. Do you see them that way? You know what I think God wants us to do these days? He wants us to view our trials as training and not as trouble. That's our issue. What we typically do is we see trials in our lives and we equate them to trouble, not as training. But here, what we see is this is a testing of your faith. This is training your faith. What do you do when you train? I know that it's the resistance that you feel that builds the muscle, 
right? Even as I've gotten onto my bike and I've started to ride my bike into downtown, man, it's all coasting and it's all good. I could go as long as I want to until I get to downtown. It's kind of like some hilly stuff, right? Carlos will tell you, I come in, I'm huffing and puffing. And I'm like, man, I wish he saw me when I was just rolling. And he's always like, here, man, here, drink some water. Get some on your lips, you know, <laughs> get a breath mint. Like he's always trying to come to my aid because I'm falling apart and it's just a little bit of a hill. But that resistance, that training is what actually is the development, right? And, and, and what's building up. And what is it building up? Well, it says that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That word for steadfastness could be endurance. It could be perseverance. Well, you don't need to, in, you don't need endurance unless you're pushing through something. You don't need uh, endurance unless you've got somewhere to go. Trials produce that in our lives. The tests and the temptations that we have, whether it be a temptation to sin because I lost my job and now it would be easy to go out, rob and steal. Right. Or whether it be the kind of test that makes us say not only is why does bad things happen to good people, but man, how could God be good if bad things happen? Right. That, that temptation, what we need to do is allow it to have this is moving on to verse three, allow it to have its perfect work, allow it to mature so that it leads us to a place where we ourselves mature. Like what, what James wants his people to understand as he's writing this. Is that. Steadfastness and patient or steadfastness and uh, perseverance and endurance is going to grow in you and it's also going to grow you. This is about our maturity. How many of us want to remain baby Christians? How many of us don't want to mature ever in our faith? That's a good moment for everybody to be silent. I hope you guys are not talking on the Zoom, right? <laughs> There's no amen in that corner. All of us want to grow. Well, the issue is we probably need to be like rethinking what that will look like because it's not going to happen because you get to know a lot of stuff. And that's why this book is hard for a lot of people. It's faith works. This ain't about I become intellectually brilliant and now all of a sudden I'm mature. No, this is about working through stuff like hardship, suffering, trial, grief, poverty. And that's how you're going to mature. That's what that's what that's what God's calling us to. He tells us that if we let steadfastness have its full effect, that you will be perfect and you'll be complete and you will be lacking in nothing. That really is just repetition. He's saying it will have its fullest course. The perfect work is the word we could translate better as mature. It's not that you're going to become sinless. Don't don't think that at all. You're going to be more aware of your sin and more apt to put up some wrestle against it. What James is writing to as he starts out this book is a group of people who are facing trials and who need to understand that he's calling us. That when we meet trials, when we encounter trials, that means that they're probably going to be unwanted. They're also unavoidable. If I had my notes, I would show you, but you just got to believe me here that in Luke chapter 10, when the man fell among the robbers and was left for dead and the good Samaritan came and helped him, the falling among, that's the same root word. 
This is meeting a trial that you can't avoid, that you did not expect, but that God intends for your good. When you meet those trials, God wants you to be patient in them and to persevere. And that's going to mature us, right? So later on, what I'll try to do is I'll give you the actual summary sentence. But let me see if I can recite it by, uh, by memory on my own. But we started by asking the question, why do bad things happen to good people? We even tried to rephrase that. I want to make it very practical for us. And I want to be honest. Why does God allow bad things to happen to his people is the question. And the answer is because those bad things produce Christ-like character in us and it makes us mature. And so therefore, you and I need to have an attitude about the trials that we endure that causes us to have like an attitude of gratitude. Take up a mindset of joy when you face these various trials, because you know that very thing is what God is calling us to do. I think that's a timely word for us. It'll be repeated. We just read the whole book. You probably saw it. Man, he keeps on talking about this. Perseverance, suffering, trial, patience, and on and on and on. God is calling us to commit ourselves even deeper and further to these things. And I think that it's just... Um, it's good that we enter into this season. So I'm going to pray for us that we would be the kind of people who can count it as joy, which means I'm going to I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm going to I'm going to consider it to be joy even when I don't feel joyous. Right. This is not about your happiness. People who have joy shed a lot of tears and they endure a lot of pain. But if you know that that's going somewhere for you, especially that it is producing in you the mind of Christ and it's leading you to God and godliness, then you can consider it joy. So I'm going to pray for us that we can all have that mind and that God will lead us in his time.